Welcome back to CoreYM, the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency Program. I'm Brian Gilberti. And I'm Breedsey. Bree, the mercury has fallen, and we are in the middle of the winter here in the Big Apple, which always puts pneumonia at the forefront of my concerns. I don't know about you, but my mom would always stress the importance of staying bundled up because leaving the house without a heavy coat, hat, and gloves was considered a risk factor for getting pneumonia. Oh, totally. So growing up in Canada, my mom would send me to school every single day in a full-on snowsuit whenever it hit zero degrees Celsius, so I quote-unquote wouldn't catch a cold. Yeah, as far as our parents were concerned, bundling up was considered pneumonia prophylaxis. So we wanted to cover this topic on the show because it is so important. Pneumonia is the second most common diagnosis that we are admitting, and it has consistently been the number one infectious cause of death in the U.S., The IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America, also came out with updated guidelines late last year, so it's good to review these on the show. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, I mean, on top of all that, much is poorly understood when it comes to diagnosis and treatment. Chest x-ray is poorly sensitive, with one study finding that it's only 44% sensitive for pulmonary opacities when compared to a CAT scan. Also, in a majority of cases, we're unable to isolate a causative pathogen. In addition to the microbial heterogeneity, there's a broad spectrum of severity of illness, ranging from bouts of questionable clinical significance to MICU players. Yeah, I mean, it's a hefty topic to cover, so we want to dedicate this episode to just the most recent updates and more recent questions. The IDSA slash TSA recently dropped a set of updates to the guidelines for treatment of CAP, the first such update in over 10 years. All right, so let's get to business and start dissecting these recommendations. First up is whether we should be getting sputum cultures on these patients. And I bet most of us haven't been doing this, and it's recommended that we continue to not collect sputum cultures unless they're risk factors for MRSA or Pseudomonas. Also, if they're intubated, then we could get an endotracheal aspirate. So first, let's pause right here and talk about what we should even be considering for these risk factors. I think it's a source of a lot of confusion. According to the guidelines, the risk factors are prior infection with these bugs, or hospitalization plus treatment with IV antibiotics in the past 90 days. To get even more granular, MRSA risk factors, in addition to those I just mentioned, are recent influenza infection or necrotizing infiltrates. Next, the risk factors for pseudomonas are structural lung disease, obviously a history of pseudomonas infection, steroids, meaning patient is on greater than 10 milligrams of prednisone a day, or antibiotics greater than seven days in the past month, or finally neutropenia. Agreed. And that's really important to go over because I think a lot of these questions always come up and what we consider risk factors. And I've been hazy on this too, on when to start vanxosin for patients and if we're overdoing it. Okay, so that's sputum cultures. What about blood cultures? To frame this response, these blood cultures are usually very low yield, on the order of 2% for outpatients and only 9% for inpatients. So these aren't going to crack the case for a large majority of cases. Now that being said, it's not going to surprise you that blood cultures are not recommended for most of these patients. However, you can get the blood cultures with severe community-acquired pneumonia, and a table outlining how that is defined will be included in the show notes. Also, we should be obtaining blood cultures for patients we're treating empirically for MRSA or Pseudomonas, and it's pretty standard to obtain blood cultures prior to giving IV antibiotics to our patients in the ED. Okay, so that's pretty concordant with what we do at our shop. Now on to what I call the deluxe pneumonia workup, so sending urine legionella and pneumococcal urinary antigen. Again, this is recommended in patients with quote-unquote severe pneumonia, and also if a patient has been in a location with a recent outbreak. 
It's important to note here that when outcomes have been compared in randomized trials between patients receiving pathogen-directed therapy versus empirical therapy, there has not been a statistically significant difference in the things that we care about, like mortality, rates of clinical failure, or length of hospitalization. Well, that makes sense. But if it doesn't make a difference, then why should we even test at all? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. This recommendation comes from a reduction in mortality that we've observed in large observational studies, but we really don't know whether testing truly pretends a clinically significant difference or if it's just a sign that there's a well-caffeinated astute physician at the helm. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about swabs. Are you getting flu swabs in all of your patients with suspected pneumonias? Well, this year is already looking like it's going to be a doozy based on the Department of Health data. But I think I speak for most eMERGE docs in New York City when I say that we've definitely noticed the impact that flu is having on our census. So to answer your question, Brian, we are swabbing all patients within the window of symptoms that may be due to the flu and or pneumonia, and only the patients that are going to be admitted for pneumonia, even if they are outside the window. Again, this is just a recommendation, and there isn't robust evidence, or really any at all when it comes to pneumonia plus flu, that testing for influenza improves outcomes in patients with CAP. This is mainly due to an extrapolation of data for admitted patients, not necessarily with CAP, who are flu positive and received Tamiflu that have been associated with reduced mortality and ICU stay for a certain strain of influenza A. Personally, I basically test if I'm going to treat confirmed flu, so the young and the old, the pregnant, the immunocompromised, or if I'm going to admit a patient because they'll need droplet isolation on admission. Yeah, that's pretty consistent with my practice as well. Finally, let's tackle the question of ordering ProCal in the ED. And our relationship with this test is still in its nascent stages. We know that trending ProCal inpatient can lead to earlier and appropriate discontinuation of antibiotics in admitted patients. There's a growing, robust amount of evidence that shows that procalcitonin algorithms reduce antibiotic duration without significant difference in mortality, length of stay, or treatment failure. But Bree, should we be ordering ProCal in the ED, if at all? Like you said, Brian, it is very early and things can change, but ProCal should not be used in the ED to determine who gets antibiotics. In other words, it has not been able to help us distinguish viral versus bacterial etiologies for lower respiratory tract infections. The accuracy of this test to detect bacterial causes is between 65 to 70%, and we also don't know the best threshold to use when distinguishing between these two processes, meaning viral versus bacterial. Mm, okay, that just about rounds out additional testing. How are you deciding who stays and who goes? So this one's going to come down to good old-fashioned clinical judgment. We have two clinical prediction rules for prognosis, the PSI and CURB-65. The PSI has more data supporting its ability to determine who can safely be discharged and leads to an increase in the number of patients ultimately discharged without a poor outcome. Now that being said, the PSI requires us to get an A-stick to measure arterial pH and partial pressure of arterial oxygen, and I think most of us aren't getting A-sticks on our pneumonias. CURB-65 is less complex and clinically demanding, but there isn't much data that supports its effectiveness or safety. Great. So now for the meat of it. Who's getting what? Let's do a rapid review. All right, hit it. Mm, cap in healthy patients as an outpatient? Okay, so this is another notable update. Amoxicillin 1 gram TID here. At least in our neck of the woods, we have lost azithromycin monotherapy as an option to treat CAP as an outpatient. Azithro should only be used in areas where pneumococcal resistance to macrolides is less than 25%. Doxy is also an option here. Okay, what about CAP in those with comorbidities? So diabetes, chronic heart problems, lung, liver, or kidney disease, alcoholism, or malignancy? 
we're doing cepadoxime and azithro for the most part. Fluoroquinolone monotherapy is an option, but we are moving away from that. Okay, got it for outpatient cap. What about inpatient cap? So here's another change. We can still give ceftriaxone azithro, but our ID colleagues are noticing an increase in the amount of resistance to ceftriaxone, prompting a recommendation to start using unison and azithro. Finally, how about our patients with MRSA risk factors and those with pseudomonal risk factors? Okay, so for MRSA, VENC, unison, azithro, and for those with pseudomonal risk factors, give zosin and azithro. Wow, a lot of stuff to consider for one of the most common maladies that comes through our doors. Certainly, the landscape has changed a bit, and these updates are a good prompt to go over what we knew, what we thought we knew, and how we can best manage these patients. Want to bring us home with some take-home points? Sure. Okay, one, know the limitations of your tools in the ED. Chest x-ray, PSI, and CURB are among those with limited utility. Diagnosing and dispoing may come down to mainly clinical judgment. Number two, regarding additional testing in the ED, you can get it in severe cap, but know that they seem to be of limited utility with respect to clinical outcomes. Number three, Procal is a hot topic, but really shouldn't be used as justification for withholding antibiotics in the ED. Number four, resistance has increased in New York City to azithro, so monotherapy with this agent is no longer adequate. Use high-dose amoxicillin or doxy. And finally, watch what you're calling HCAP. The definition has been narrowed to boost our antibiotic stewardship to include in general those with prior colonization, and those admitted within the last 90 days and received antibiotics during their stay. Okay, that's all for this episode. A special thanks to Dr. Kot Camp, our infectious disease specialist, for all the help in preparing this episode. Continue to follow us on Twitter at corn.scoreem and visit us on our website, coreem.net. Until the next one, this is Brian Embree, signing off. <laughs>